Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here for part two of our conversation with Dr. Brian Fickert. Previously, we talked to him about sort of the integration of Christian faith and his discipline of economics in our previous conversation. This is part two of this is about uh, his terrific book, Uh, entitled Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, a very provocative subtitle that I want to get into. Uh, But uh, Brian Ficker is professor of economics and community development and founder and president of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College in Tennessee. Uh, he is. You may. He, you may be familiar with Brian from his from his best-selling, well-known book called "When Helping Hurts: How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor." And I know I've got, you know, I've got my own, you know, my own faculty here who uh, do youth ministry and do short-term missions, and they said that that book totally turned their their whole view of short-term missions upside down. Uh, so, Brian, thanks so much for being with us for part two of this conversation on a very provocative book. Uh, and just great stuff. It's great to be with you again today. Thank you so much. So the, the, let's get right into this. The, the subtitle for your book is what what I really got my attention. Why the opposite of poverty isn't the American dream. First of all, what do you mean by the American dream, and why isn't that the opposite of poverty? Well, certainly, America is a is a land of opportunity. It's been a beacon of hope for people all over the world. And, and I don't want to downplay any of that. I love America. I love being an American. Um, so we're, we're not trying to trash America by any stretch of the imagination. But but there is a particular story in America uh, that kind of focuses on the idea that the good life is sort of this rugged individualism and the pursuit of personal peace and prosperity, as, as Francis Schaeffer uh, called it. And so the kind of this rugged individualistic pursuit of materialism that we think is actually really damaging. And it's um, part of the American story. Unfortunately, it's it's emerging in many ways as kind of the premier feature of the American story. And we think, that, we think that's very unfortunate. You're well known for an earlier book that Scott cited called When Helping Hurts. Can you explain just kind of what's the heart of that book, the premise of it, and how does this book fit in, maybe compare or contrast with that earlier one? Yeah, great question. So when Helping Hurts um, basically argues that good intentions are not enough, that it's possible to hurt the poor and ourselves in the very process of trying to do good. And, and, and the reason for that potential harm is because the way that most um, – uh, most of us think of poverty is as a lack of some material thing. We think, if you ask most Americans anyway, what is poverty? They'll say it's a lack of food, a lack of housing, a lack of clothing. Because we tend to define things as a lack of some material thing, our solutions tend towards the material. If you ask poor people around the world, what is poverty like? Uh, they will certainly talk about a material aspect to it, but they'll often say things like this. I feel shame. I feel inferior. I feel less than human. I feel like I'm not really part of society. I feel like I can't affect change in my life. The poor tend to describe their poverty in far more uh, psychological, social, and spiritual terms than uh, many of us who are trying to help the poor do. And, And so that disconnect between how we're thinking of poverty and the way that the poor are experiencing poverty uh, is kind of at the heart of a conflict in the space of poverty alleviation. And so often our efforts, uh, which focus on providing material things, 
actually undermine human dignity, actually uh, exacerbate the sense of inferiority on the part of the materially poor. And it often uh, exacerbates our sense of superiority, our God complexes. We think that we're the saviors because we've got the stuff that they need and we've arrived and we're okay and they're not. And so uh, we're really trying to address that and and some of the practical implications that come out of that. uh, what happened, uh, the Lord used when helping hurts in ways that we never could have imagined. And, and um, we're so thankful to the Lord for that and give him all the glory for that. Um, but a, a number of things happened. One of the things that we experienced is that people would come up to us at a conference or, or, or somewhere we're speaking, and they would ask very specific questions. You know, I've read when helping hurts, but I'm working with this very particular tribe in this country in Africa, and I'm facing this very particular situation, what should I do? And the truth of the matter is, we didn't have a clue. There, there, there's, no, <laughs> there's no recipe, there's no formula, it's not like that. And so we realized that what people really needed was just wisdom. They, they needed kind of an overall story, uh, some would call it a theory of change or a story of change about what the goal is, for human beings, and how does God typically go about achieving that goal? And so there's kind of a need for a meta-narrative, if you will, and some practical uh, um, tools and, and, and resources and principles that come out of that meta-narrative. They kind of needed that wisdom to guide them because we didn't know what to do in those situations, but they needed to have that wisdom that then they could, uh, through trial and error, through experimentation, they could figure out ways to help the poor people that they were working with uh, live into that story. And so that was, that's one, one thrust here or one motivation for this book. But as we were thinking about that, we realized that we had lost a compelling story for ourselves. Uh, many of us in the West have a sense of um, loss, a sense that, uh, that life isn't all that it should be. There's uh, increasing uh, uh, evidence of unhappiness, of, of discontent, of increasing anxiety and mental illness. And so there's a sense in which uh, there's kind of a paradox here. M- many of us are kind of saying to materially poor people, hey, we're going to help you to become just like us. Of course, we're miserable, but, but, but come, come, come join us in our misery. And so we realize that there's a need for a better story for all of us, for both those of us who have material possessions and those of us who don't. And that's what Becoming Whole is trying to get at. So it builds on When Helping Hurts. It goes deeper. It's kind of the operating system behind When Helping Hurts um, and hopefully goes deeper and extends that work into some new areas. So, Brian, you sort of raised my, my next question, which is uh, the, the phrase you use, which I think is so helpful in the book called The Paradox of Unhappy Growth. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? And what's the evidence for that? Today. Yeah. You know, a lot of that comes to uh, comes from a, an economist named Richard Easterlin, uh, who is best known for something called the Easterlin paradox. Uh, very briefly, economists believe, uh, well, mainstream economists believe that human beings can be modeled or described as homo economicus, uh, a purely uh, uh, physical creature, um, a rational creature, a, a fully autonomous creature. This is not a creature who is built for a relationship. Uh, it's sort of a, like a consuming robot. And, and so happiness for Homo economicus comes from consuming more and more material things. And so the more stuff we have, the happier we are. Well, what constrains us from having, uh, from reaching nirvana, so to speak? Well, the economist would say what constrains us 
is we have limited income. We, we don't have infinite income. And so economics is about um, figuring out ways to increase people's incomes so they can buy more stuff, so they can be happier because all of us are this creature, homo economicus, says the economist. Well, uh, uh, Richard Easterlin discovered that when he, when he looked at the data, we see incomes in the United States, uh, average income uh, 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 of Americans going up and up and up over long periods of time. And yet the self-reported happiness of the average American uh, is constant or actually declining in the past 10 to 15 years. And, and so to an economist, this is like saying the resurrection didn't happen. <laughs> the idea that income's going up and up and up and up and up, and people aren't happier. In fact, they look like they're less happy. That, that's completely uh, an impossible outcome uh, if you're an economist, we, we can't conceive of that kind of world. And so um, there's been a lot of research about this, a lot of controversy about it. Um, I'm also partial to some research by a social psychologist named um, Jean Twenge and some others that are working with her that have looked at issues of mental health, mental illness, anxiety, depression uh, over long periods of time. And, and, and she and her colleagues have shown that from the 1930s to the present, uh, anxiety and depression amongst college age young people in America has steadily increased. So, so we think the iPhone is ruining the world. I certainly believe that's true. But this is long before the iPhone. But going back to the 1930s uh, to the present, there's a steady upward trend in anxiety and depression. And so it's sort of like we're we're living into a story, the story of the American dream, and it, it's a story of you know get more stuff. But we're not happier. And in fact, our, it seems like our personhoods are screaming out and saying, I'm not built for this. I'm wired for something different. I'm created for a different habitat. So that's what we're trying to get at with this idea of the paradox of unhappy growth. We've got growth, but we're not better off. And I should just mention that there's evidence of this um, uh, as the process of globalization is spreading the institutions, the practices of Western capitalism around the world. And by the way, I tend to be a big, I, I love markets. I love capitalism. Um, but what we're starting to see is uh, similar experiences around the world, that as uh, people are growing, as economies are growing, as incomes are going up, we don't see happiness going up. We see more and more anxiety and depression. Mm. So uh, even China, you know, China, the incredible story, the past 25 years, um, um, the percentage of people in China living below the poverty line has absolutely plummeted. Uh, one of the most, an economic miracle and yet there's research to suggest that people are less happy in China today than they were in 1990. So something's wow. wrong with the story. Gene Twenge's book, iGen, in 2016, which is three to four years before the COVID pandemic mm. began, she said, we're on the precipice of a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is that we think there's a material solution to this. We can fix yeah. it with a certain drug fix it with a certain amount of money or economics. But you make a different point. You say in poverty alleviation, there's a quote you have. You said, the matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. What do you mean by that? All of this really comes down to um, what is the right anthropology, right? So what is the nature of the human being? Uh, uh, Western naturalism uh, has tended to view the human being as this uh, autonomous physical creature, um, certainly my field, my discipline of economics has, has embodied that perspective um, uh, in a very deep way. Uh, I think a biblical framework suggests a very different anthropology. Um, and I, I've you know, been slowly coming to grips with this in my own life. This has been a long journey for me. Um, 
I think the Bible teaches that the human being certainly has a physical dimension. We don't want to downplay that. The physical dimension of the human being is part of the goodness of the created order. But we also have this thing called a soul, or what the Bible often uh, refers to as the heart. And it's our inner being. It's the thing that really drives us. It's the thing that is, is the foundation of the human being. And, and um, uh, you know, Proverbs uh, 4.23 says, you know, out of, guard your heart, right? Because um, out of the heart flow the issues of life. Some translations actually suggest that the language in Hebrew is sort of more like the walls of the city grow out of the heart. And so there's this idea in Scripture that we are um, uh, highly integrated uh, body soul kinds of creatures, body, heart kind of creatures. And, and then there's this further dimension that we're relational beings, that we're wired for deep relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation. And so the human being isn't just a body. And we're not just a body that contains a soul, the way that some of us tend to think. We're highly integrated body, soul, relational thingies. And, and this matters because when that woman walks into your church, asking for help with her electric bill. Uh, what we do at that moment, uh, the way that we work with her, ought to be informed by who she is. And, and un unless she's purely a victim of somebody else, and certainly uh, the likelihood that she has been um, um, somewhat victimized by others, uh, her primary driver is her heart. And so the fact that she's got um, uh, that she can't pay her electric bill is partly it's not solely, but it's partly a function of her own drives, her own motivations, her own uh, desires. And, and that's her heart. And so uh, when we're walking with this woman, you know, people, people are always asking me, do I write the check or not? Do I give the money or not? And, and that's certainly an important question. But um, the question doesn't understand the fullness of what's going on here. There's a heart at play. There's a, a set of drives, a set, a, a set of desires that's driving this person. Until we get to the heart issues, we're not going to have lasting impact. Brian, let's let's go into these stories of change as you describe them. Yeah. Um, or meta narratives, what we often call worldviews. One yeah. of the things that's so helpful about the, your book Becoming Whole is you describe three of these that are the, the dominant ones that you consider to be false stories. And one yeah. of them is actually a a, a version of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, so you, you describe Western naturalism, traditional religion, and then what you call evangelical Gnosticism. Yeah. I'm curious if you if you briefly explain what you mean by each of these. Yeah. And just a reason or two why you consider those false narratives. And then I want to explore a little bit the evangelical Gnosticism a little bit further. Yeah. So let's do them in uh, this order. Uh, traditional religion is kind of a catch-all term. Some people use the term animism, uh, but uh, Animism is considered a pejorative term these days, and so traditional religion is a is a a religion um, that uh, is embraced by many materially poor people in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And it's not an organ; it's not so much an organized um, religion. Uh, it's but it's a set of beliefs that takes on various forms and shapes in different settings. But there are some common features to it, and and. Um, in the traditional religious view, and this is hard for us as Westerners to understand, but in the traditional religion view, uh, the spiritual and the material touch. So the, 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 there's a spiritual realm that's full of uh, good spirits and, and bad spirits and forces and uh, ancestral uh, spirits and um, 
that sp- those spiritual forces basically control the material realm. And so human beings don't really see themselves as being uh, in charge or, 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 or having dominion over the physical realm. Uh, they see themselves more as people who should hunker down and try to maintain harmony uh, with the spiritual realm. And so, you know, in the West, we kind of think about conquering the world and making something of ourselves and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, you know, being an entrepreneur. In traditional religion, it's more like hunker down because I don't want to get great grandmother's ancestral spirit mad at me. And so it's, 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 it's a worldview that's full of fear. That, that loses the sense of human agency, that, that's basically a maintain equilibrium and don't get anybody upset. And of course, this has profound implications for uh, work, for entrepreneurship, for uh, the business enterprise, for technological advancement. It's not a worldview that's conducive to that. It's a worldview of hunker down and try to appease uh, uh, these various spiritual forces. Um, uh, you know, kind of the polar opposite end of the spectrum is Western naturalism, which most of us have, this is with the air that we breathe every day when we walk outside of our house in the morning. And it's the story I was mentioning earlier that there's a high doubt that there is a God. And if there is a God, he's irrelevant. And so instead of the spiritual realm controlling the physical realm, uh, the world is viewed more as a physical mechanical machine in, in that spirit, the spiritual dimension, if it exists, is, is separated from the physical world. And so life is material. Uh, and, and so this is why, you know, um, we uh, in the West, we tend towards um, trying to conquer the material realm uh, through science and through technology. And, and um, uh, this is why we think that human flourishing tends to come from material things, because we have a very, very materialistic view of the world. Even in this, by the way, both of those profoundly impact our work with the poor and how we go about that. Evangelical Gnosticism is a term that at least I first heard it from my good friend, Daryl Miller. And, and um, it, it's really a, a, a syncretism between the gospel and Western naturalism. And, and so uh, it, it basically says there is a God, uh, but he's Lord of our spiritual lives. It, it tends to maintain the, the separation between the spiritual and the material. And, and so uh, this is why we tend to view our souls as disembodied, as, uh, as things that just kind of get beamed up to heaven when we die. Uh, and this is why we tend to pray to God on Sunday morning, worship him on Sunday morning. And then Monday through Saturday, he's kind of divorced from the functioning of our material existence. And so uh, we worship God on Sunday morning. Uh, Monday through Saturday, we tend to revert to the story of Western naturalism, the story of the American dream. And so you end up kind of living this life that says, um, I trust in Jesus to get my soul to heaven when I die. Uh, but Monday through Saturday, I'm just pursuing the good life here and now so it doesn't hurt too much. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a kingdom story. It's not a, a, a story of human flourishing. It's a bifurcated life and it doesn't work. So you, you hinted that each of these affects the way we approach the poor and poverty. So let's take them one by one. Traditional religion, which again used to be called animism. Yeah. How, how would that worldview shape the way somebody would approach poverty? 
Well, um, most poverty alleviation strategies flow out of the West. And so it, it's a little hard to, hmm. um, but if, if I were, if I were uh, let's say, um, an organization that was um, originating in a rural village in parts of Africa, and I wanted to help poor people in my village, and I was coming from this traditional religion perspective, I might... Um, uh, spread the use of uh, fetishes, the spread the use of rabbit's feet, uh, spread the use of various kinds of rituals to appease the spiritual forces so that my life in a material sense could flourish more. So, for example, um, I was in a village in rural Togo um, a couple of years ago, and uh, I met a man there whose body was um, full of scars because he was cutting himself. He would go into um, wow. a... Um, um, basically a hut with a shaman or a witch doctor and he would cut himself with shards of glass to bleed and the blood was a sacrifice to appease um, the spiritual realm so that he could prosper more in the physical realm so <laughs> so I I, 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 I don't never really heard, thought of poverty alleviation strategies being designed by people from a traditional religion perspective but there's a sense in which that is what's going on there um, you go to the witch doctor uh, and you do various kinds of incanta incantations and so on uh, to try to give yourself a uh, fuller material existence. Um, I can give story after story like that, but that, that's basically how you would design it. It's the shaman. It's the witch doctor. Uh, in Western naturalism, there's kind of two things you do. You're, again, here in, in this story, you're trying to help people have more stuff. So you either give handouts uh, it's certainly the federal government has done that in many instances, and I, I believe there is a role for social safety net, by the way. But but oftentimes our welfare programs have been uh, kind of very focused on material handouts. Uh, our churches do this in spades. Um, uh, many short-term missions trips uh, involve just sort of hurling resources around. Uh, it's what we do when we stop at a traffic light and there's a homeless person standing there. We wrote on the window and put a dollar in the person's hand uh, thinking that somehow this is going to alleviate the problem. Often we get kind of tired of this. We, we start to feel like it creates dependencies and we get tired of giving. So then we kind of shift towards kind of the economic empowerment approach, which is basically let's help our economies to grow. And um, that's a good thing, by the way, but let's help our economies to grow. And then let's help poor people to have the skills that they need to get good jobs. And again, this there's, there's positive things in the story. Uh, let's help poor people to get jobs so that they can uh, work. And as a result of their work, they'll have an income. Again, very positive. I think work is central to poverty alleviation. But it is a story that basically says, keep on going. Um, uh, work harder, earn more, work harder, earn more, consume more. And it kind of puts us on this kind of consume, earn, consume, earn treadmill that I think is really ruining Western civilization. Um, I, and what does that look like? Listen, in poverty, it can you know it can look in like um, uh, microfinance, microenterprise development. The Chalmers Center that I'm part of is very involved in that. It can look like jobs preparedness training, financial literacy training, all things to kind of uh, get you to sort of into the market system and helping you to thrive there. And something there's a, that's part of this, that's part of the solution to poverty. There's no question. Uh, the evangelical Gnostic approach basically. Uh, it mimics the approach of Western naturalism in the sense that it either does handouts or it does economic empowerment. 
And then it kind of tacks a tract on the front end that says, trust in Jesus that your soul can get to heaven. And so it, it huh. sort of addresses the physical the way the world does, handouts or economic empowerment, and it addresses the spiritual through this sort of uh, trust in Jesus and get your insurance to get your soul to heaven someday. But it's not an integrated program design. It's, it's the, the way the program functions, the, the funding for the program, the, the, the things the program does, uh, the staffing, the metrics. They're not metrics for shalom. They're metrics for the American dream plus get your soul to heaven. And it's not a way of discipling people, whole people, body, soul, relational creatures into what it means to be fully human. And that's the direction we have to go. Brian, let me just uh, tack on a little bit to that. Uh, you, you maintain that uh, in Western Christianity, I think in this evangelical Gnosticism, that there's an incomplete view of the fall. Uh, and an incomplete view of why Christ came to earth. Uh, those are pretty important theological notions that shape our worldview. What's missing? Yeah. I actually want to back up and say the first thing that's missing is creation in your, in your question. So, <laughs> Good point. So, so um, some, some dear friends of mine, including my co-author, Kelly Capick, on Becoming Whole, he, he, you know, Kelly Capica said to me, Brian, one of the biggest problems in Western Christianity is that we have a very, very weak doctrine of creation. And, and I, I've come to see that he's really right about that. And, and so the creation story, of course, is that God creates the whole thing and calls it good. The spiritual is good. The physical is good. And creation includes uh, social structures, social institutions. And so uh, the family, for example. Is, is part of the created order. Uh, I believe economic life is part of the created order. I actually believe government is part of the created order. I, I would argue that without a fall, we would have government. And so we, we need to see all of creation, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, the, 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 the uh, institutional, the whole thing as part of the goodness of the created order, of part, as part of what God calls good. Then the fall happens, and um, Christians have had a tendency to reduce the effects of the fall to um, uh, subsets of the comprehensive nature of the fall. So that the fall is cosmic in scope. It cuts through every aspect of the created order. It cuts through our individual hearts. It cuts through our bodies. It cuts through uh, the, the physical realm, the spiritual realm, uh, the social structures. It's comprehensive in scope. There's a tendency uh, in the world and certainly a tendency in the church to reduce the fall to uh, subsets of the created order. So th those who are more on the political left tend to say that social structures are fallen and so that poor people are poor because of oppressive social structures. Well, uh, the fall did ruin social structures, uh, the economy, uh, the political process, the family. All of these things are broken because the fall happened. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have those who are a bit more conservative who tend to focus on individual sin, that, that the fall has affected my individual heart. And that's true, of course. 
And because of individual sin, people are poor because of their misbehaviors, because they're lazy or they're addicted to things. Well, certainly that can be part of the causes of poverty. I think a comprehensive view of the fall says the whole thing is broken. Uh, Individuals are broken. Systems are broken. And it's more than that. Neither party is even recognizing the presence of demonic forces that are unleashed in the world post-fall. And so the church historically has said, what's the enemy of, of, of us? It's the world, the systems, the flesh, my own heart, and the devil. It's comprehensive. It's the whole thing. And so much of the church right now is divided over where did the fall happen? Well, we all just chill out. Of course, <laughs> of, of, you know, all this debate right now, I, I, um, of course, social structures are fallen. Of course, social systems don't work properly. That should be like a softball. But we should also recognize that individual hearts are broken. And, and so when we see material poverty. Uh, when that woman walks into our church asking for help with her electric bill, our orientation, our worldview, our perspective ought to be, uh, well, uh, she is a sinner, and it's conceivable that her own sins have contributed to her situation. Uh, She's also living in a fallen world, and so it's entirely possible that she's been discriminated against, that she's been abused, that the systems haven't worked for her. And oh, by the way, Satan has a vested interest in seeing image bearers lying in the gutter. So Satan's attacking her. Now, which in, in any particular situation, it might be more of this and less of that and higher percentages here and that and so on. But our, our orientation ought to be to look at the whole thing and be open to the whole thing. And then, we, and then we have a comprehensive gospel, right? So the good news, what, what bothers me so much, I, I have done this thousands of times. I ask Bible-believing Christians, and, and I, you know, I'm a theological conservative. I ask Bible-believing Christians in, in, in theologically conservative churches, why did Jesus come to earth? And everybody, everybody reduces the answer to this. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for mm-hmm. my sins so that my soul can go to heaven when I die. That's true. That's a thousand percent true. I have a legal problem for a holy and righteous God. I don't deny any of that. It's all true. But the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says he's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that that's why he was sent. And the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is the overarching narrative of the New Testament. And in part of that, that kingdom is bringing healing as far as the curse is found. King Jesus conquers demonic forces. He conquers and, 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 and reframes uh, broken social structures. And he changes me as an individual. And so the whole thing is big. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's all big. And it's the reductionism that we engage in that hurts us so much. Brian, what you've done in these just in the last few minutes of this is what is so helpful about both becoming whole and your your previous works when helping hurts and others is how I think how skilled you are at integrating good biblical theology into your discipline as an economist and the place where your heart is in terms of poverty alleviation and the I think as as you've pointed out this is so helpful for our listeners to see that the the overarching story. The, the, the meta-narrative, the story of change mm-hmm. that the scripture provides is is the missing piece mm-hmm. in our poverty alleviation today. And, and God forbid that we would simply export to the developing world a, a model of alleviating poverty that, that in your view is, I think correctly so, is failing. 
mm-hmm. in the U.S., which is which you point out with our paradox of unhappy growth. This is, I mean, we could we could go on for the rest of the day on on some of these things, and we we'll, we look forward, Brian, to having you on again. Uh, but this has been so helpful, uh, and I want to commend to our listeners your book, Becoming Whole. Uh, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And if you haven't read his previous book, When Helping Hurts, that's a must read also. So, Brian, thanks so much for coming on with us. Uh, We look forward to having another conversation with you at some point when another one of your published works comes out, which I'm sure will not be too long, too far down the road. Brothers, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Brian Fickert, give us a rating on your podcast app and be sure to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.